Post Reports is sponsored by the Asset Podcast, produced by the Center for American Progress Action Fund, District Productive, and Protect the Investigation. The Asset tells the story of Donald Trump and Russia. It's about the role of a hostile foreign government in the election of the President of the United States. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, this is Tracy Jan calling from The Post. Am I catching President Trump, how are you? Hi, it's Robin Gibbon at The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Monday, June 10th. Today, how Mexicans view their deal on border security, new revelations about the state of the NRA, and a streaming site for Broadway. At the end of last month, President Trump threatened to impose major tariffs on Mexican imports. He wanted Mexico to do more to stem the flow of migrants from Central America to the U.S. border. But over the weekend, U.S. and Mexican officials reached a deal to avoid those tariffs. Under the agreement, Mexico would agree to do two things that were very important. In the U.S., President Trump has been criticized for this deal by both Democrats and Republicans. Well, I think what the president has done is tout what, in fact, in many respects, Mexico has agreed to do many months ago. By and large, the president achieved nothing except to jeopardize the most important trading relationship that the United States of America has. The president believes that tariffs are a significant positive economic tool. Uh, lots of people in the country agree with that. That's never been my view. Mary Beth Sheridan is a Post correspondent in Mexico. She talked to me from her home in Mexico City about how people there are viewing the terms of this new deal. At Mexico's southern border with Guatemala, where migrants are entering from Central America, Mexico would deploy about 6,000 National Guard troops to stop them and to ensure they didn't go any further unless they had documents. And then on Mexico's northern border with the United States, essentially where the migrants' journey ends, Mexico would agree to really expand a program it's had with the United States in which the U.S. returns migrants who are seeking asylum to Mexico to wait out those processes while they're going through all the administrative stuff. And that means the migrants would be staying in Mexico for months at a time, maybe even more than a year, until their asylum claims are adjudicated. So rather than waiting in detention centers in the U.S. or being released into the U.S. population, they would be waiting for U.S. asylum, but they would be waiting in Mexico. That's correct. And I think the measure is intended to discourage migrants who think that it could be pretty easy to get into the U.S. In fact, they'll be facing, under this program, long waits in Mexico. So how has Mexican President López Obrador presented this deal? It's so interesting because clearly Mexico made some significant concessions But he's presenting it as a victory that Mexico managed to um, ward off these tariffs that Trump had threatened that would start at 5%, would go to 25%, and could be really devastating to the Mexican economy. So he has portrayed this as a big win and uh, a triumph for Mexican diplomacy. But then there also have been criticisms from within the U.S. that these concessions that Mexico made, there were already things that were kind of in the works or or things that Mexico had previously been prepared to put in action. That's true. Mexico has been forming its new National Guard and had indicated to the U.S. that it would be willing to use the National Guard for migration purposes. But the new agreement is much more specific. I think there's a much larger deployment than 
had been specified before, and Mexican officials say that these uh, National Guard will be deployed more quickly than had originally been planned. And how is this plan being received by Mexicans? Mexicans had really rallied around López Obrador when facing this threat to their economy and the threats from President Trump. However, what we're seeing today is that more details are leaking out that actually more might be on the table than initially publicized. So it looks like Mexico and the U.S. are going to start evaluating the results of this new accord in 45 days. And if there's not sufficient results, there's talk of some sort of regional asylum agreement that would be considered under which a lot of these asylum applicants now going to the U.S. would actually have to file their claims in countries before they got to the U.S. They would sort of be stopped and uh, required to to do the processes there. They wouldn't be allowed to come into the U.S. So that's a new element today that I think is is raising a lot of questions. What is your sense from experts about whether these most recent set of promises about putting National Guard troops on the southern border and having people wait for asylum in Mexico, whether that will significantly decrease the number of people entering into the U.S. or have a meaningful impact? You know, it's a huge question mark because these National Guard troops are not trained in migration enforcement. They don't have full legal capabilities to um, detain people. They can help migration agents, sort of like in the U.S. Mexico's migration agency is very small. I do think you're going to see an increase in detentions and deportations because I think Mexico is quite committed to that. They're very worried about uh, anything that would damage their economy, like the idea of tariffs. So I think you could see the National Guard certainly stopping more people. A lot of the smuggling happens through buses, so those could be detained, you know, more frequently. I, I think that you'll see a change, but I, I think the question is always, um, how long will it take? You know, when you look at the northern border and the idea of returning migrants to Mexico, there's probably a lot of legal and technical details to work out. How quickly will that be done on the U.S. side and also on the Mexican side? I, I think there's will on the Mexican side to to take steps and, and reduce the flow of migrants, because even in Mexico, Uh, I think there's concern about how big the flow has gotten. But these are complicated uh, processes, and I'm not sure it's going to be something that that is a dramatic permanent decline in migrants that, you know, I'm not sure we're going to see that right away. All of this kind of brings up interesting legal questions too, right? Because ultimately it is legal for people to seek asylum in the U.S. So can Mexico really stop people from attempting to seek asylum in the U.S. and and going to the U.S. border and declaring themselves and saying that they want to apply for asylum? So the U.S. has an agreement with Canada under which an asylum seeker who goes to Canada, let's say somebody from Eritrea, can't land in Montreal and then go down to the U.S. border and seek asylum. Hmm. The idea is once they're in Canada, if they're fleeing danger, they're safe in Canada and they can request asylum. So the two countries have an agreement that people landing in Canada have to seek asylum there. So with Mexico, um, there certainly could be an agreement worked out between the two countries that would do something similar. It would have to go through the Mexican Senate. Now, López Obrador, the president, has a very comfortable majority in Congress. He's very powerful, very popular. So he could probably get that through, although it could be contentious. What Mexico is trying to do, though, 
is to avoid that it becomes the country where all asylum seekers going to the U.S. have to stay. So it sounds like the agreement that they're potentially considering would require people to claim asylum in the first country that they get to after they leave their own country that is a safe country. So the idea, in other words, is that Guatemalans could seek asylum in Mexico, but they they sort of can't go on and claim it in the United States. And Salvadorans would have to claim asylum in Guatemala. So in other words, almost the first country that you get to, that's where you have to claim asylum. That's sort of the rough outlines of the agreement that they're looking at. But the idea is that if you are truly in fear for your life, then you should be relatively agnostic about what country you end up in, as long as it is a country that is safer than the country that you've left. That's correct. As long as you are not in danger anymore, you should be able to claim asylum there. So what can we expect on these continued negotiations over the next few weeks and months? I think you're going to see a certainly a stepped-up Mexican effort to detain migrants on the southern border with Guatemala. I think you're going to see efforts by the Mexicans to somehow accommodate many more people in the north who are being returned from the U.S. to await their asylum procedures. And uh, President Lopez Obrador talked over the weekend about trying to offer humanitarian aid to those people, allowing them, you know, uh, work visas and education and health services and so on. So I think Mexico is going to try and avoid that from becoming, you know, a humanitarian problem. And I do expect that um, the talks on this regional asylum system will probably move forward. So it seems like both sides are declaring victory here. Both President Trump and the Mexican president say that this is a big win for them. Who, who is right? Who has, actually, who has actually won? The sort of easy way to look at it would be to say that President Trump, by threatening Mexico with severe tariffs, has really gotten Mexico to make uh, significant concessions on migration and probably will continue to maintain that. However, I I think that it would be a little simplistic to think that this is just an outright win for Trump. There's very bitter feelings in Mexico. And I think a lot of Mexicans are questioning their relationship with the United States in a way they haven't for years. Manufacturers who counted on NAFTA suddenly were faced with the prospect of very punishing tariffs. So I think there's, there's something in the air in Mexico you feel where there's a questioning of the relationship with the U.S. And a lot of people say the damage could last for quite a while. Mary Beth Sheridan covers Mexico for The Post. The NRA is really one of the most powerful political forces in this country. It has been that way for years. It's the largest gun lobby. They claim more than 5 million members. Beth Reinhardt is an investigative reporter. And lately, she's been looking into the finances of the National Rifle Association, which has faced accusations of financial mismanagement since April. For several weeks now, the NRA has been in the news in ways that the organization would prefer not to be in the news. There was a very public feud between the NRA's CEO, Wayne LaPierre, and the president of the association's board, Oliver North. That came to a head at the NRA's annual meeting in April. They've accused each other of extortion, of financial impropriety, and of conflicts of interest. 
the membership rallied behind Wayne LaPierre and Oliver North was forced to resign. In May, private documents started leaking that showed LaPierre had spent hundreds of thousands of dollars in luxury clothing and travel. And the organization is also facing intense legal scrutiny. Around the same time, the New York Attorney General, Letitia James, she's a Democrat, she came into office vowing to take on the NRA, and she let it be known publicly that she was investigating the NRA. It's a tax-exempt group, and they have certain guidelines they're supposed to be following, and she said she was going to dig into their records. And one of the potential points of legal scrutiny could be the way that board members like North have received money from the NRA, even though they're supposed to be in charge of supervising NRA finances. We wanted to learn more about the board's oversight, and that was why we looked at whether members were receiving compensation. What did you learn? So we learned a lot about the board of the NRA. First of all, it's a large board. There are 76 members. There are no term limits. So some of the board members have served for a very long time. And we learned that a number of them, 18 in all, in the last three years, we looked at documents from 2016 to 2018, had received some kind of compensation as a result of some kind of business arrangement that they made with the NRA or that their business made with the NRA. Here are some of the examples. David Keene, who is a former president of the NRA, got about $112,000 in the last three years for uh, making public appearances, some consulting. Another director, Sandra Froman, she's a lawyer. Her law firm was paid almost $100,000 for her public appearances. Dave Butts, who is an ex-NFL player, played in the Super Bowl or maybe a couple Super Bowls, um, got $400,000 in the last couple years. It's almost half a million dollars. And this seems unusual to me because, at least from what I understand about how nonprofit boards are supposed to function, it's that this board is there primarily either to raise money for the organization or to provide some kind of financial oversight of the organization. But it sounds like in this case, the NRA is giving them money. So many nonprofits have what's called give or get policies, meaning you have to give a certain amount of money or get, raise a certain amount of money for the organization. The NRA does not require that of its board of directors. Instead, you have a quarter of the board receiving financial benefits. And why is that important or potentially problematic? It's problematic in that if you have a board member who is being asked to carefully review the organization's finances and maybe raise questions about excessive spending, but at the same time is getting paid, then their own financial interests at times could conflict with their duties as a board member. Now, it's legal for board members to do business with the organization as long as it's properly disclosed. But the experts that we talked to said the number of board members who are doing business with the organization, you know, the pattern raises questions about the number of potential conflicts of interest and that weakening the rigor of their oversight. What do the board members and what does Wayne LaPierre say about this? So the board members and Wayne LaPierre have you know, rallied to the defense of the NRA saying that their spending is on the up and up that these arrangements were disclosed properly, which appears to be the case in the examples that we found. 
And they have sued their longtime public relations agency, Ackerman McQueen, which they were paying $40 million to last year alone, alleging that they have leaked confidential information and that they have failed to account for their spending. So, like you said, the NRA is one of the most powerful political organizations in the country and has a lot of money and wields a lot of power. And a lot of that power comes from the fact that they have so many members across the country, so many very loyal members. When you've talked to average NRA members, what do they have to say about these new revelations? Some of them are angry. They care deeply about the cause. They want to make sure their gun rights are protected. But at the same time, they feel like their dues are being squandered. Even people who feel passionate about gun rights are looking at the NRA and saying, maybe this isn't the best place for me to be spending my money. Exactly. At the same time, I, I would be you know overstating it to say there's any kind of a, a large exodus. I mean, this is a century and a half old organization with 5 million members. The NRA is the NRA. Exactly. But there are signs that they are not as strong as they have been in the past. Their spending in 2018 in the midterms declined. They've got a shortfall in their most recent tax filings of $17 million dollars. So while it's typical when you have an administration in power that supports gun rights, that membership and donations decline because people aren't as worried and agitated, there are concerns that the NRA may be losing ground. This new information about the behind-the-scenes finances of the NRA and some of the bad press that, that comes with that, what do you think that says about the current state of the NRA? I think we've seen a bit of an inflection point in terms of public sentiment. After the Parkland shooting, you even saw some Republicans spurning NRA contributions. You're seeing a change in the polls. You know, NRA remains a fierce organization to contend with. But Democrats who used to be afraid of the NRA now are increasingly, you know, wearing their bad grades from the NRA as a badge of honor. So you've seen the gun control groups outspend the NRA in the last election, and that was real a real change. Beth Reinhardt is an investigative reporter for The Post. Post Reports is sponsored by the Asset Podcast, produced by the Center for American Progress Action Fund, District Productive, and Protect the Investigation. Listen to the story of the role of a hostile foreign government in the election of Donald Trump to President of the United States. Download and listen today. And now, one more thing. Actual people in an actual space, watching actors who are actually there. It's something unique to that time and that place. It's something you feel, it's something you share. The Tony Awards happened on Sunday night, and the host, James Corden, made a statement with his opening number. We do it live. It can't be hashtagged, and it isn't tweetable. There is a visceral bliss. You only get in a theater seeing people do this. The idea was that experiencing live theater is completely different from watching a movie or TV show on Netflix or Hulu. Except a new company is trying to change that by letting you stream a Broadway show. Broadway HD 
is bringing the Broadway experience to your laptop, to your screen, to your TV, to your computer, no matter where you are. If you can't get to Broadway, get to Broadway HD. Broadway HD was created by Stuart Lane and Bonnie Conley, two veteran Tony Award producers. That's Steven Zeitcheck. I'm a business of entertainment reporter at the Washington Post. The creators say they need Broadway HD or the world needs Broadway HD because right now the entertainment world is becoming more digital. It's becoming more streaming oriented. It's becoming more on demand. We're seeing that across the spectrum with Netflix, with the coming Disney Plus, with what Warner Media is going to be doing, HBO. The way their platform works is a user pays $8.99 per month and gets unlimited access to any show on their service. Right now, that's about 300 shows, about 750 hours. They're trying to add more by the day. Uh, They're getting some resistance, but that's what they're doing right now. There are people who say this isn't necessary. There are people in the Broadway community who say, you know what, we have a business that's thriving. And to suddenly start trying to create it, a digital experience around it, to suddenly basically tell people, you don't need to come to Broadway to see it, they fear is going to cannibalize their business. We talked to about 13 uh, industry insiders. Uh, Many of them support it. Many of them said, this is something the industry needs if it hopes to expand, if it hopes to stay healthy. Others say, you know what, this is really not viable and worse, it can be dangerous for the industry. The challenges facing Broadway HD are that a lot of people are not looking to the web, to digital culture, to give them a live experience. And so right now it's about acculturating people uh, to doing that. It's also about capturing the live experience. The live experience is obviously very unique. It's about the intimate space between the actors and the audience. And replicating that in, in a more static digital environment isn't so easy. Steven Zeitchek covers entertainment for The Post. That's it for today's episode of Post Reports. Thanks for listening. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.